The House of Representatives is set to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, the latest iteration of President Biden's tax and climate agenda. The road to get to this final package has been anything short of easy, with congressional Democrats scaling back the initial $3 trillion Build Back Better agenda into the bill before lawmakers today. What sacrifices were made by key lawmakers to bring this bill to the finish line? And what would the economic impact of this proposal be as the country continues to face historic rates of inflation? Hello, and welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, communications manager here at the Tax Foundation. And today we are joined by our senior policy analyst, Garrett Watson. Garrett, what a week. It's been a fun one. Glad to be here. Yeah. So last time we talked to you, we were chatting about the Senate taking up the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, remind our listeners real quick what the Inflation Reduction Act is. So the Inflation Reduction Act is a bill that passed out of the Senate this past weekend uh, that's went through budget reconciliation, which is a process uh, that the Senate uses uh, to pass legislation related to uh, the budget process. Uh, and this year, uh, Democrats pass it uh, in the Senate on a party line vote in an effort to pass their legislation that increases taxes, uh, provides several hundred billion dollars in tax credits for renewable energy, increases funding for IRS enforcement, along with uh, with several other smaller elements uh, to it, and is, is now moving to the House to be considered. Uh, and then after that, at the end of this weekend, uh, might end up at the president's desk. All right. So when we were talking to, um, it's a pretty big bill, um, and the Senate has a lot of tax changes in that. Uh, but with these reconciliation packages, Amendments can be voted on up to the last minute pretty often. So the bill that we always see at first isn't the final product. Did the Senate make any significant changes between it was in its introduction and by the time it actually got voted on? So there were a few things that did change since the, the announcement that Senator Schumer and Senator Man- Manchin both came out with that they came to an agreement. Uh, one of them was the removal of a provision that would have raised taxes on carried interest, which is a form of compensation that certain folks in the financial industry earn. Uh, that was removed from the bill uh, on uh, the, the ask from Senator Cinema, but of course that did have an impact on on revenue. I uh, lost some some revenue gain because they took that tax hike out. The other change we saw was a narrowing of the proposed fifteen percent minimum book tax on large corporations. Uh, the, the book tax originally was going to penalize corporations for taking accelerated depreciation deductions on their books. Uh, and w- this change removed that particular application of the tax. So it narrowed it, also lost some revenue. So in order to make up for the, that, both of those revenue losses, uh, the Senate uh, produced an amendment that did two things. One was it brought in a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks for corporations. So corporations can buy back stock. It's a way of providing some benefit to shareholders in lieu of a dividend. Uh, now uh, they'll be facing a 1% excise tax on uh, repurchases of stock be, uh, beginning uh, next, early next year on January 1. Uh, and the second thing they did was they extended uh, a tax hike on pass-through businesses, particularly limiting the way they can take losses uh, from 2027 through 2029. It's an extension of the policy that exists currently this year. It was set to expire in the end of 2026, and instead they moved it two years to make up for that that revenue shortfall. Uh, so lots of moving parts here, but the rest of the legislation, including the energy credits, IRS enforcement, uh, and most of the drug pricing provisions passed the Senate without many changes. Okay, so they got rid of some tax hikes, replaced them with different tax hikes to, of course, you know, make it uh, fit within the budget rules that are in place for these reconciliation bills. Um, now, when Tax Foundation originally scored the Inflation Reduction Act, so before the Senate started voting amendments, 
we were seeing negative 30,000 jobs over the 10-year run, like 300 billion net revenue, slight ding in long-run GDP. Um, how have those numbers changed with the tax changes? Are we still looking at mostly the same picture? Is it a rosier picture, worse picture? What, what difference did those tax changes make? So overall, the picture is very similar to what we were looking at uh, in, the, in, the, in the legislation as it was uh, introduced earlier. For example, long-run GDP, we find uh, will shrink by about 0.2%. That's only slightly larger than what we saw earlier. We're still seeing about 29,000 jobs lost overall, wages down by about 0.1% in the long run. And it brings in about $324 billion of net revenue over the next 10 years. So some of those numbers uh, shifted due to the, this big swap of taxes, of course. We did find, for example, that the excise tax on buybacks uh, would have an effect on a corporate investment, which can be damaging in the economy. But overall, very similar numbers uh, in terms of that net swap on the uh, revenue and economic side. Same on the distribution. Our distribution is only very slightly changed, uh, but overall, still, still finding overall the expanded healthcare credits, the green energy credits uh, would end up raising after-tax incomes on average for income groups, uh, most income groups between 2023 and 2032, though that comes at the trade-off in the long run of about a 0.2% reduction on average of after-tax income for all income groups in the long run. And that's because of two reasons. One, uh, we do expect these tax hikes to damage the economy, as we just uh, mentioned. Uh, That's going to translate into lower after-tax incomes in the long run. And the second is a lot of these benefits, for example, the expanded healthcare benefits expire at the end of 2025. Most of the energy credits, with only a couple of exceptions, expire at the end of either 2031 or 2033. So the big boost that you're getting in the budget window uh, for after-tax incomes actually disappear. And I think one under-discussed part of the story is top earners, many of them may actually end up ahead in this legislation. Sort of counterintuitive. And the reason why is because the energy credits by 2032 actually grow. They're about worth a little over $40 billion, and many higher earners claim them. And the uh, the corporate tax hikes remain roughly flat over that time period. The corporate book tax, for example, is, is pretty flat over those 10 years. And so that nets out where both we and the nonpartisan joint committee on taxation find that folks making a million dollars or more may actually see a tax cut in the next 10 years. That's certainly something. And uh, I'll remind our listeners that every study we're talking about here, we will link in our episode description. Well, and of course, tax expirations, that's a whole whole different political battle and economic battle that I'm sure we'll discuss in later episodes too. So that happened to the Senate. Let's get to the House now. It still has to pass the House before it can head to the president's desk. What's kind of the state of play there? We have a 50-50 Senate. Democrats control it with the vice president. But the House, it's a little bit bigger for majority, but there's lots of different factions in the House Democrat caucus. What's going on over there? Yeah, just a slightly larger majority, I believe. As of today, there's a three-seat edge uh, in the House for Democrats. That actually was, uh, I believe, reduced from four seats uh, at one point uh, over the last week due to some special elections that happened. But so a pretty narrow edge here. But with that said, the expectation is that this will end up passing the House. The the major uh, barrier roadblock to passing the House that we had talked about a bit uh, before was the group known as the Salt Caucus, which are basically a small group of House Democrats, many of them representing higher tax, higher cost of living states, where their constituents were facing a limitation to taking their state and local tax deductions. And that's because under the 2017 tax law, it was capped at $10,000. And many of their constituents itemize and have more than $10,000 to deduct. And so their representatives were saying, hey, we really want to see some uh, loosening of this salt cap in any deal that was done. And that was expected to be a potential issue because 
uh, Democrats couldn't come up with a design for that that would get uh, enough support to pass. Uh, but it looks like that that caucus overall has decided that this legislation is worth supporting. Uh, many of them have already come out publicly saying they'll support it. The main reason they say they support it is because this legislation doesn't really change much in terms of the individual side of taxes. So I guess that doesn't violate the red lines, and they're looking to to support this bill moving into the House. That said, we've seen a lot of twists and turns in this story over the last year and a half, uh, so we can't take it for granted. But I, I think base case, uh, it's expected that it will pass without any changes made. Uh, and the reason why is because if the House wanted to change something, it would require them to pass this bill in the House, and then they'd have to go back to the Senate and conference committee, reconcile the two bills together because they're different. And then the Senate would have to vote on it again. And that would, would make it a lot harder for, for, for them. So it's expected that they'll pass it as is. And if so, uh, it'll go to the president's desk by sometime early next week where it would be signed into law. And of course, this is kind of the opposite scenario from last year, because the House did pass the Build Back Better agenda last year, didn't have enough votes in the Senate. But now this is kind of a slimmed down version of it. And the Senate went first. Now the House is taking their turn on it, right? That's right. And for any bu- budget process folks uh, listening, of course, changes to uh, to, to the budget writ large typically have to start in the House. They technically did because the House passed Bill Back Better. It was transmitted to the Senate. And then the Senate started from that Bill Back Better legislation and amended it and basically replaced it. <laughs> so that rule is still being followed here. Uh, the House just needs to do their part and pass this amended version out of their chamber now. Okay. So they're taking that up this weekend. After that, if it passes, um, as is, should head to the president's desk. Now, Garrett, this is being billed as a climate bill, which it is. It's being billed as a health care bill, which it is. It's being billed as an economic bill, which it is. Uh, but it's titled the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think we'd be remiss not to talk about that. Let's say this thing gets signed into law by Mr. Biden on Monday. Is inflation going to reduce on Tuesday? What's going to be the impact here? Yeah, so that that is the big question in Washington is how do we evaluate this in the context of the current inflation uh, crisis that we're dealing with? That can get tricky because inflation, as as many of us know, is a combination of both you know real economic factors that are happening as well as expectations. So it is true that any legislation that is passed uh, can actually have, when it comes to inflation, uh, a quick impact because it might change how people sort of think about or expect the economy to uh, to evolve moving forward. That is one part of the the story here. The challenge with this legislation is while it has been uh, advertised as a deficit reducing bill, uh, and that is true over the 10 year window, for example, we think that uh, the deficit conventionally will be reduced around by around $174 billion. The argument there is, hey, it reduces the deficit. That's deflationary. It's taking money out of the economy, right? We're collecting more in taxes than we're spending. That's that's great. But there are two major uh, nuances here that are important. One uh, comes back to the expectations game. A lot of this deficit reduction requires Congress and the White House to be on the same page about the expiring provisions in this bill. The ACA subsidies, the healthcare subsidies in particular, are due to expire in 2025. Uh, if people expect that those subsidies aren't really going away, that this is a way of just kicking the can down the road and will be extended, this is sort of phantom deficit reduction. Right. It goes back into the story that we talked about last year with Black Better, where we had phase outs and expirations that politically really weren't. We knew they were going to be continued. So that's going to mitigate people's expectations about how much uh, deficit reduction will actually happen moving forward. Uh, the second thing is it actually, in our estimation, uh, doesn't reduce the deficit in the first few years. And that's because we estimate at the Tax Foundation that the tax revenue will be less than many folks are actually expecting, particularly the book minimum tax. So if, if tax revenue is lower than expected, that may actually mean an increase in the deficit over the next few years, and that could also be inflationary. Those two reasons alone should make us cautious as it relates to the inflationary impact on the, uh, of this bill in the short to medium run. We agree with the CBO's um, assessment, the Congressional Budget Office, 
which had a, a letter last week that basically said this this bill is going to have very minimal, if any, effect on inflation one way or the other. At best, it's going to be about zero. And I think that's the right way to think about this uh, overall. The last thing to mention, of course, is the tax hikes are a risk in and of themselves because we find they're going to constrain the productive capacity of the economy. And when you do that, you're going to have fewer goods and services, uh, which is going to uh, mean that that prices are going to be higher than they otherwise would be. And that's another, I think, longer term risk, especially as these tax hikes uh, are permanent and the spending is temporary. Those hikes are going to translate into a, into a smaller economy. That should be a concern, uh, even if inflation normalizes. Yeah. So inflation reduction question mark. But this thing becoming law seems to be if you're a betting man kind of in the positive right now. Um, I, I don't gamble. I don't know if that's an actual betting term there. But Garrett, uh, informative, of course, I know you'll be following this thing as it moves all weekend through the house. Uh, we'll be keeping updates, you know, as it progresses. Uh, where can people follow you for the latest? You can find me on, on Twitter at GS underscore Watson, and you can find our work and model estimates at taxfoundation.org. Great. Garrett, I'm sure we'll be back again soon talking about this bill after it passes. So uh, thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carvajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and the deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at DeductionPod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.